this is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. Longtime listeners of the podcast should remember political analyst Mordechai Tao, member of the Central Committee of this country's ruling Likud Party, and a former upstairs neighbor of mine in Jerusalem. Mordechai, welcome to the show. Good to be with you, Yehuda. Uh, first and foremost, Mordechai, uh, in light of the coronavirus, uh, how are you holding up? I'm good. Yeah? A little careful, but good. Okay. It appears that we've had a, a spike here in the state of Israel, and mm-hmm. it has been dominating our political conversation, our media focus. So maybe first and foremost, you can share with our listeners how you feel the corona crisis is impacting Israel's political system and the various parties. What's happened is what you refer to as the spike has occurred in specific areas and sectors. And therefore, it becomes a very delicate issue. Um, For example, it's increased much more in the Arab sector, uh, primarily for two reasons. If you go around the primarily Arab neighborhood, you're less likely to see people wearing masks. And the refusal until recently to limit large congested weddings. And many of the cases are traced to these large events. And when those in other sectors of society, Jewish sector or anywhere, don't observe that law and have crowded um, events inside, we're seeing the same effect. We're seeing suddenly large pockets of sudden increase in the coronavirus. And when it's sectorial in a a society, it becomes difficult to limit certain movement only in one part of society. You're speaking specifically not only about the Palestinian sector of Israeli society, but also the Haredi sector. Right. Uh, But much more so in the Arab sector. Uh And, And how does that impact the government's ability or willingness to take certain precautions? Um, They're not taking severe precautions. And they're hoping that limited precautions will have a positive effect. And then they're leaving open the option of of a universal closure to some extent, which would be a disaster for the economy and for society. Now, one of the reasons why the coronavirus spike being limited to specific sectors is so politically contentious is because, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, is because you're talking about sectors of society, in this case, we're speaking about Palestinians and Haredim, who, whether right or wrong, view themselves as, on some level, oppressed by the state. Okay. However, I would say it's true about a great many sectors in the country. Right. But to close down these communities specifically would increase the perception in these sectors that they're being unfairly targeted. Right, but anywhere that you'll have homogeneous neighborhoods and you were to take this action, you would um, have this severe feeling. If you would go into a neighborhood where there's a large concentration of Russian-speaking individuals and there would have been this um, spike and you would close down the neighborhood, you would, you would again feel that negative effect. Right, meaning it would be equally contentious and the group would experience itself as being unfairly targeted. Exactly. Right, and of course that does weigh into the political thinking 
of those making decisions. Right, as perhaps it should. How do you see Prime Minister Netanyahu's handling of the crisis overall? I would say poorly. Mm-hmm. I would say part of it is simply not the strategic decisions. It's simply tactic. The idea to announce in the middle of the week that the policies for the next week will be announced on Saturday night is absurd. Um, the idea that people should anxiously await till the last minute and then have to plan their work week and their family week and how to combine the two, whether there will be schools or not be schools, and which schools will be open and when they will be open. To do so at the last minute is, was a very poor decision. And what do you attribute that decision to? Um, massive amount of pressure coming from every direction. Um, some of that pressure is, is legitimate and justified, and some of it is just um, selfish and ugly. And let me give you my personal distinction, what I consider legitimate. Okay. There are educators who believe that keeping children home from school for too long will do terrible damage to their social fabric and their education. There are health officials who believe that there's too much of a risk of putting children in school. Both of those are legitimate, healthy pressures. There are those with economic concerns that are concerned that keeping children from home will limit people's ability to run their businesses and go to work. That's a legitimate concern. The country can't indefinitely have an unstable economy. Uh, I I believe some interests, like uh, certain theaters, where they want to crowd um, large groups of people into closed areas for a few hours, and they're losing tremendous amount of money, I think that's simply selfish. I I think that's not a legitimate concern. I think where, where certain factors have proven to be a risk, where it's clearly a risk to put a large amount of people in a crowded, closed room. We've seen this. I think that's simply selfish. And how central a position do you think the corona crisis has in the day-to-day political thinking of right now? Like how much, first of all, one of the reasons why he seems so, from my perspective, so susceptible to the pressures is because he doesn't have a strong position of his own. Could be, could be, that's quite possibly. Um, you can function at a level, we'll see what's going to exist at the last minute. That's a, a, a manner of discussion an individual can have in his home. An individual can decide on Wednesday that on Sunday morning he's going to decide whether he's going to let his child go to um, school or not. You can't have a country functioning in that manner. But this is Israel. Okay. And that's Welcome. unique. Yeah, right. Although I'm not sure we're the only nation behaving in this way right now. No, we're not. There are worse decisions that have been made. You know, we're not going to go through, obviously, a list of what's been happening throughout the world. Clearly, there have been worse irresponsible decisions that have been made throughout the world. I think there needs to be a long-term policy. And when there's not a long-term policy, um, the public loses confidence. And when they lose confidence they're not going to obey the instructions given. So that's interesting. When, this, when the COVID crisis began a few months ago, uh, I think the nation, for the most part, fell in line, followed instructions. 
Very similar to how we respond in times of war. But there was also one other factor yeah. as to why people fell in line. In addition to them having more confidence at the time of the government, mm-hmm. they, there was this perception that the, there was a limit, that the COVID would last a month or two months or three months, and there would be a vaccine coming soon. The perception today is that we have no idea mm-hmm. that, you can, that it could last a month, it could last for the next six years. And if it's going to be indefinite, you can, to tell someone to take irregular steps for something that could be going on for years, they're not ready to do. Right. If you want to tell people they're going to have to stay home for two weeks, and then you're going to resolve the crisis, they're ready to stay home for two weeks. Mm-hmm. But if you tell somebody they're going to be bound in their home for two weeks, and then in two months again, there might be another closing for two weeks, and two months after that, another two weeks, they're saying no. Then they'd rather be Sweden. Sweden where they just had no mask, no limitations, almost no limitations, and they, they let the, the virus take its course. They paid a, a severe price in Sweden. There were soon a few thousand deaths. And the gentleman who, who had that policy and was the master of that policy said, don't judge me now, judge me in a few years. Now, there's, they're still not backing down from that policy. They believe it's a matter of time, but they, they're still standing by the idea that they had the right policy. Mm-hmm. The world has certainly changed. Right. And uh, this crisis will likely be remembered as something that marked the beginning of a new era of sorts. Meaning even just the fact that so many of us have gotten used to working remotely. You know, I think that after all of this, just the idea of having to travel to an office every day for work seems ridiculous to a lot of people who've been uh, working just fine from their computer. There are offices that have closed down permanently. Mm -hmm. There are people who were working at home because of COVID and were told by their firms that even when COVID is over, this will be the normal policy. There are certain companies that are finding that they're actually more productive today. Mm-hmm. The, the entire dynamics of how people work and interact has changed. Right. So I really brought you on the show less as an expert in the coronavirus and really more as a political analyst to help give our listeners some insight into what might be going on in the minds of some of the major political figures and within some of the political parties in Israel's Knesset right now. And by the way, just so you know, one of the reasons why I'm going so in-depth with this conversation is because I think, first of all, you have a lot of expertise to share when it comes to our political system. And a lot of our listeners are living abroad. They're living in other countries with very different political systems. And sometimes when you look at Israel politically, somebody, for example, coming from the United States, looking at Israeli politics, has trouble not viewing our political system within the paradigm of a two-party reality, the two-party context that they're used to. So I think it's, right. it's really important if we're dealing with Israel as a multi-party parliamentary system, we offer listeners uh, the opportunity to really understand the extent to which that game is different. Exactly. Right. So how has corona, in your opinion, influenced the political map? I believe it's um, caused people to focus on um, what's day-to-day issues. Because it's affected people's ability 
to run a business and make a living, that suddenly has moved to the head of the list. Mm-hmm. Whereas you would have, might have taken a poll and somebody might have said, what's important to them? Social issues or foreign policy or the religious character of the state. And what you have now is those same people um, will say the economic stability. Because their economic stability of their job or their business has been challenged. So, you know, the state of Israel just recently had three national election cycles. And it was extremely difficult for Bibi Netanyahu to put together a governing coalition. Uh, After the third election, he managed to do it by distancing himself from some of his traditional partners and by forming a unity government together with certain people who had run together as part of the Kocholavan blue and white combination of parties. What's the likelihood, in your opinion, of Israel heading to a fourth election in the near future? And what role, if any, would the coronavirus play in Israel moving towards another election cycle? I don't think that anyone has long-term plans. On the other hand, I don't see political stability as a possibility. Even if this government lasts another few years, it will be, always be at the status of political instability. And therefore, it could happen at any time. Well, how do you define the difference between political stability and instability, just to be clear? Okay. Um, stability is when nobody has an interest of an election where government is functioning in a unity level and there's a a, a majority that does not want election. By the way, the majority that doesn't want election might not necessarily be the majority in government. There could be an opposition party who currently would go down in the polls and they don't want election either. Mm -hmm. They're part of the political majority that doesn't want an election. The okay. large majority that doesn't want an election, you have a stability. And today we don't have that. You know, the obvious example right now is probably Yamina, right? The Yamina party, which currently has five seats in the Knesset, is polling close to 20, pretty consistently. Right. So it's clearly in Yamina's interest to, to go to elections. Exactly. And they're they're making an attempt to push towards elections without appearing irresponsible to the public. I would think that's an appropriate assessment. Who else? When you look at the political map, who has an interest in going to elections right now? I would say that Yisroel Beitenu, Yvette Lieberman's party, because while he might go up and down a little bit about where he is in the polls, he wants to be in the post-Netanyahu era. They were obviously once very close on a political and personal level, and you know they're not that close anymore, to say the least. And he sees any election as advancing the possibility of the Netanyahu area being over. Do you see legitimacy to that assessment? Yeah. Yeah, there are just so many more elections that Netanyahu can run. We can divide the parties in many different ways, but let me try one way. Those parties whose leader are dreaming of one day taking the prime ministership, Mm -hmm. and those parties that currently do not have those dreams. Clearly today, Prime Minister Netanyahu and those that are follow him in the Likud um, consider themselves as the primary candidates for the prime ministership going into the future. Mm-hmm. Naftali Bennett of Yamina dreams of becoming prime minister. Mm-hmm. Yair Lapid 
of the Eshatid dreams of being prime minister. Benny Gantz and Gabi Ashkenazi of blue and white, irrespective of how poorly they're doing in the polls, the dream of one day becoming prime minister. There are others that are not. It's not on their agenda and they don't plan it. Well, he's, he might have dreamt of it at one point. Yvette Lieberman no longer thinks of that. Ariadne of Shas does not think of that, and Litzman does not. Nor does um, Horowitz in Meretz think that he's one day going to be prime minister. And therefore, you have the difference of people who are thinking too long term and those who are thinking short term. And those who are thinking too long term in politics are often, as opposed to other areas, are often those who make significant errors. Instead of thinking of how they're going to get through the next election and how they're going to do better than they are now, they're worried about their plan in 10 years from now, how they're going to be prime minister. Can you give an example? I think Kahlon, who no longer exists, he came on the scene with 10 seats and he had people in his party leaking how he dreams of turning that into a party and prime minister. And Moshe instead of, Right, instead, he was fine, former finance minister. Instead of going, thinking he's now 10, how is he going to get to 13 or 14 and pick up another ministry? In the next election, he was dreaming already and speaking in a fashion that in his mind, he was thinking how he was going to be uh, prime minister. Um, you had this rampant in some of the small national religious parties where you had leaders who were two, three, four seats and they were already thinking of how they were one day going to be prime minister. Instead of, you know, how they're getting through the next year and the next election, they were losing their connection with reality. So you're saying in general for the smaller parties and even for the medium-sized parties, short-term thinking is best. Right. In other words, the blue and white Benny Gans on the good polls, they're getting uh, 11. Okay. So they should be thinking how they're going to move from a from 11 to 15. If he's thinking how he's going to be prime minister in the next election, he's making a big mistake. Even though he was a contender in the last election. Right. That's irrelevant now. Totally irrelevant. Mm -hmm. And do you think he understands that? No idea. I have no idea. I don't know, you know, how open he is to all sorts of points of view. Um, Is he surrounded by yes men? Is he surrounded by his former colleagues in the army? who don't have a touch and a feel for current politics. Well, what about his former partner, Yair Lapid? Yair Lapid has been working his way up, um, really, as you said, with ambitions to lead the country. What are his prospects? His potential doesn't crack 20. But at no time, even in polls, do you see him getting what will allow him to to take the leadership. The dynamic could exist where, where he does take it but very quite difficult. Would it be accurate to say that Yair Lapid might be making all the right political moves, but simply doesn't have a public, doesn't have an electorate who's interested in buying what he's selling? Exactly. He's very popular. He has a lot of charisma, but it's hard to see 25 seats going his way. Just because the public isn't socioculturally there. Right. Right. It would be like... um, it would be like a Litzman from Agoda talking about being prime minister and running from Agoda. All right, there aren't 25 seats running going to vote for Agoda. It's like Horowitz and Meretz talking about it. There aren't 25 seats that are considering voting for Meretz under any circumstance. 
Right, but I think the difference between Horowitz and Lapid on one side and Litzman on maybe Derry on the other is Litzman and Derry at least have a growing public, meaning with every generation, there are more and more potential voters for their parties. Not that they would necessarily be leading the parties at that point, but right, exactly. Shas and Aguda, a generation or two from now, could be thinking about leading the country. Exactly. What or an evolution of what they are today, not, not, not in their current state. An evolution of what they are today. Right. Not in their current state. And even though I would imagine both Litzman and Derry do see the potential down the road, they're not living in that fantasy. Exactly. And therefore they're successful. Exactly. Uh-huh. So what about someone like Prime Minister Netanyahu? Bibi Netanyahu, do you see him as being close to retirement at the moment? Do you see him as somebody who might retire in the next three to five years? It's so hard to tell. If I was sitting next to him and violating him, I would have suggested that he retire a few races ago, in the beginning of these last three, mm-hmm. where he was way ahead in the polls mm-hmm. and he didn't go out on top, mm-hmm. where he served longer than any other prime minister. How long he wants to pull this off, I don't know. Um, Clearly, part of the factor is there hasn't been a legitimate challenge from another party. I don't consider Benny Gantz a legitimate challenge. Well, what about within the Likud? Do you, do you see Netanyahu as having decided on a successor? No, there is no such thing. Uh, someone will just have to take it from him. Or he will retire, like you said, and they'll, be, they'll run against each other. Mm-hmm. Do you see Netanyahu as close to retirement? It's a, it's a matter of how, how he does in, in the election. Mm-hmm. If he gets reelected and he can form a stable government for four years, he's staying in. Those are big ifs. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you this. If you had to guess, what would you assume Netanyahu's primary political concerns are right now? What are the issues at the top of his agenda? I think he wants stability. I think he wants to maintain a wide level of political support. Remember, those that support him are not only those in the Likud. There are a number of satellite party in the National Coalition who when people go in and they vote for those satellite parties, they go in with the presumption that those parties will be part of a government led by Netanyahu. So he doesn't only have Likud voters, Yes, for example, Shas voters. The 90% of Shas voters or more want Shas in, but they want it under a Netanyahu government. Meaning they're not looking for Ari Derry to be the prime minister? Not at all. And Derry has no aspirations to be prime minister? Not at all. What's going to be in a generation is not exactly relevant to his personal ambition. Mm-hmm. So if you were to describe what you think Arya Deri's personal ambition is, it would be a major minister in a Likud-led government? He already has that. It would be major ministries. Um, if he can advance another few seats, that gives him one more ministry, and it gives him a level of control. And the more ministries he can have and the more control he has, the more his political power grows, which is what he wants. And what does he do with that political power? Um, he advances the agenda of his party, which is, um, that's in dispute what that agenda is. We, you know, we can go in that direction, whether it's a more uh, society that's more traditional, um, yet with a strong social component. Mm-hmm. And that's what his voters are looking for, you think? Exactly. A Jewish society, a state of Israel that's very clearly Jewish, that manifests the values, the identity of our people, 
with a very strong emphasis on Hevrati uh, issues. On exactly, on social issues. Society, social issues. Okay, I think that's very attractive to a lot of Israelis. Um, yeah, many don't buy it. Many don't you know, buy it. Chas is genuine. Right. You know, the, um, they've had their successes and they've had their failures. Mm-hmm. And those that, you know, focus on their failures, which have existed, would not support them. Right, but the fact that so many voters are looking for something like that would indicate that there's room for another such party with a similar message to come on the scene within the near future. Don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure about that, that you can split those hairs, mm-hmm. that you can take every party and on one factor split them in, in two. Part of the attraction of certain parties is that they've managed to form a, a sufficient coalition that they're strong enough to get things done. So if you take a Shas party and you start splitting it and then somebody's able to actually get four seats, that might not be attractive to people. They want to vote for a party that will have more seats and more influence. Right. Let's take a look at some of these parties because we're in an interesting situation on a national level, I think. We have this political instability you've already spoken about. Um, We've talked about how a fourth election might be in the interest of some parties, not in the interest of all parties. And of course, everything that's taking place politically now is taking place within the shadow of the COVID-19 crisis and I think the wide perception of the government's mishandling of the crisis. How do you see the political thinking? You know, what, what are the ambitions of some of the major political players right now? Like, let's maybe start with Netanyahu or perhaps his potential successors within the Likud party. What are they looking for? Netanyahu is looking to maintain his widespread support among the public. Mm-hmm. And you believe he has that support? Yes. At the current moment? Right. At this moment. What, what do you make of the protests against him? And uh... On a number level, mm-hmm. uh, they represent very, very small numbers. Mm-hmm. And they represent a very, very limited sector of society. And the indictments? That I don't know. You know, that's a tough call. I haven't studied the intricate details of these cases, you know, just to know how strong they are or weak they are. And who are some of Netanyahu's potential successors in the Likud? Clearly, Gidon Saar has run against him recently, is viewed as a potential heir. Um, Yariv Levine, the Speaker of the Knesset, Mayor Barakat, who the former mayor of Jerusalem, these are all looked on as potential successors. But none of them are making a move at the moment. No. Saar did. Saar ran against Netanyahu in the last election. Did it have consequences? Um, I don't see him in a major ministry right now. He survived. He survived. He would do well. While they might have their differences, there aren't different camps within the Likud. There isn't this Netanyahu camp and a Saar camp that are fighting against each other all the time. There are people who went in and voted for Netanyahu as a prime ministerial candidate and then checked off Gidon Saar on their list of, of chosen members of Knesset. You mean in the primaries? Like right. Like party members in the primaries. Right. The, the camp society doesn't exist like it once did in the Likud. Would it be correct to say that Netanyahu is no longer politically strong enough within the party to sufficiently punish those who challenge him? Yes, punished he can punish. There's an extent where he can punish different people based on their strength. Mm -hmm. If he wanted to remove Gidon Saar from the list, he couldn't. 
there are people in weaker positions where he could potentially, if you wanted to do them enough damage, where they wouldn't be on the list. Mm -hmm. there, there isn't absolute control. Who are some of the other political players, some of the other parties that might be looking to lead the country at this point? The Yamina party has, has it as part of their agenda, but they're clearly not there, you know, in the coming election. They're, they could potentially do quite well. In addition to doing quite well, many of their potential voters are people that voted Likud in the previous elections. So they're going up, could do a bit of damage to the Likud. And do you think the seats that are moving to Yamina are exclusively coming from the Likud? Not exclusively, but mostly. Where else might they be coming from? Everywhere. Everywhere. This is, you know, basic politics. There are people who have a specific dynamic and a specific desire that is so unique. Some, some of them could be even people that voted on the other side of the aisle. And they don't see the potential of the other side of the aisle coming in and ruling. And then they say they want to affect the national coalition that's going to exist. So you could have somebody who wanted blue and white, who wanted Benny Gantz. He doesn't see Benny Gantz as having a chance. And then he says, um, the Likud is going to lead the next government. So if the Likud is going to lead it, he wants to influence that government and therefore might move over from blue and white to Yamina. So just to be clear, uh, a voter who potentially moves from Kocholavan, from blue and white, to Yamina, has not decided that instead of supporting Benny Gantz as a potential rival to Netanyahu to lead the country, we're going to support Naftali Bennett as a potential rival. They're actually changing their entire political strategy when voting. Exactly. No longer supporting a rival for the role of prime minister, they are now moving, they're shifting to support a party that can influence the... Right, they're, make, they're the making a tactical uh, decision. Right. And, and that's a change we're seeing. A change Clearly. as a result of there not being a clear rival to Netanyahu at the moment. Right, exactly. Well, what about Yair Lapid? Is Yair Lapid not presenting himself as a rival to lead the country? As a no, country? he seems not even in polls to be cracking 20. And therefore, while he's strong and influential, he's decided to be the head of the opposition. There was a time a few elections ago when he went into the government. Mm -hmm. And therefore, people were tactically voting for Yair Lapid to have influence within the Netanyahu government. And that's no longer happening. Because he admit, has made it very clear that he's not going into that government to have influence, that he is remaining as opposition leader. And therefore, someone who sees no potential of him succeeding as being the opposition leader might then move over and say, let me make a tactical decision within the Likud-led government of who I want to be stronger. So Yair Lapid, to me, uh, appears to be a very talented political operative. He seems to be doing everything right. I think his only real weakness is that the size of the sector within Israeli society that supports what he represents is consistently shrinking. Right. In addition to that, there are other parties that have bits of pieces of that that are quite strong. For example, Yvette Lieberman's um, Israel Beitenu party. Mm -hmm. They have certain characteristics that um, are quite similar. And their agenda, you know, just to speak in a general term, a more secular society, 
but they're very tied in to Lieberman. They're very tied in to a, a culturally um, Russian party. Right, and the personality of Lieberman. And the personality of Lieberman. And therefore, it would be difficult for them to move over to Lapid. The same thing with Merritt's. Many of them have uh, significant similarities to Lapid, but they also are, are what in Israel is called far left. And therefore, they want something which they identify as left, and they want merits. Lapid, to put together all those factors together in one party would be very difficult. A party including Yeshatid, merits, and Yisrael Beitenu. Exactly, because um, Yisrael Beitenu is what is called right. Merits is what is called left. Mm-hmm. So what they have is they have the secular society part in common, but when you try to put them together, you have a different economic policy and a different foreign policy. And therefore, putting them together makes it impossible. Right. I think it's important for listeners to understand that when Israelis use terms like left and right, they often mean things very different from what the rest of the world, specifically the United States and Europe, mean. You know, in Israel, when most people say left, they mean the westernized ruling class. But within the American Jewish community, those organizations and public figures who take the positions that Meretz takes wouldn't be called the left in the United States. They'd be called liberal Zionists. Like that okay. would be kind of label, like J Street, for example. J Street is not a left-wing organization. It's a liberal Zionist organization. Right. Um, but so when we talk about Israeli politics, it's important not to confuse listeners. Although I do agree that Yisrael Beitenu is, is very much a right-wing party in the sense that most people in the West would understand, uh, both on economic issues and on security issues, cultural issues, etc. I would actually argue that Avigdor Lieberman, Yvette Lieberman, has um, been acting, maybe not so much recently, but until this last election we had, I think that he was very much acting as a surrogate for Donald Trump. Just like in the Sharon era, it was Ehud Olmert who had often released these test balloons to see how the public reacted to certain policy ideas. And if the public Mm -hmm. didn't oppose, you know, Sharon would then adopt the policy. I think we've seen a lot of that with Lieberman and Trump. Actually, back in 2018, I remember in April 2018, when Lieberman was still the defense minister before he destabilized the government and led us to our first election cycle of recent history. He came back from Washington after meeting with American security officials at the Pentagon. He right away gave an interview to the press and told us exactly what would be in the Trump plan, exactly what would be in the deal of the century. And the reaction of most of the national camp here was to deny or ignore. Uh, Of course, a couple years later, we we did see that Lieberman was in fact correct. Uh, And and I would also argue that Lieberman's behavior in thwarting the formation of a nationalist coalition following the first two elections was in keeping with the Trump administration's agenda to see a Netanyahu-Gantz government that could accept and implement the Trump plan. Uh, um, I would challenge the idea that the Trump administration was that keen on the Trump plan. Would you? Yeah, I, I don't see it as, as something they necessarily needed. It was something that was good politically. Um, if it worked, it's fine. And if the parties were not interested, they were ready to just move on. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. I don't think they have an agenda on this issue. The truth is, I think the United States has had a very consistent policy agenda when it comes to our country since the Six-Day War. 
And the Trump administration might be in many ways a departure from the traditional U.S. establishment. But at the same time, I think the, the context, the State Department, the CIA, most policy experts gravitate towards when dealing with our country and when dealing with our conflict is a partition policy, is a two-state policy. Uh, yes, but this, this, I think this government in the United States is simply much more um, independent from even the American foreign policy establishment than, uh, than previous governments. You know, while, while one can go back to comparing the second President Bush and Obama, and while their personal inclinations might have been different vis-a-vis Israel, and their rhetoric clearly was different. You know, uh, Obama's was much more aggressive, and Bush was much more friendly. When you get to the matter of their policy, their policies were quite similar. Right, and, and not only similar to one another, but also similar to Bush's father, and to Clinton, and to Reagan, and to Carter, and to Ford, et cetera, et cetera. As you mentioned, Trump is unique, that he's, he's not bound as much by those previous constraints. Right, I think Trump is primarily steered by his own ego when it comes to most major policies. I don't know. I'm not sure about that. Right. I think there is an agenda. I think they walk in after an election and they're told, well, we need to, you know, we have these factories and we, you know, to put it simply, we need to sell these 200 planes. Mm-hmm. And that, and we have this these strategic bases in these countries. Um, I think, you know, that puts cold water um, over anybody when he moves from being a, a candidate to a president. Right. And therefore... There are these similarities in policy. Mm-hmm. And President Trump is simply a little less bound by all that than the others. But nonetheless, somewhat bound. Of course. I agree with your assessment. And uh, I want to just speak for a moment before we wrap up about the difference between parties in Israel's political system that see themselves as potentially leading the country versus those that see themselves as <laughs> partners in a coalition. And how that impacts, you know, long-term versus short-term thinking on the part of the parties or the party leaders. Okay, so those parties that see themselves as potential partners and not leading the country, in general, have a much more long-term vision because they have a much more clear agenda of what they're pursuing. And they they say, how are they going to affect that particular agenda? You know, they might say, well, for now... It looks like we'll go with what's called the left, or it might be we'll go with what's called the right. But they're not bound to those sides forever. They're bound to what is their uh, specific agenda. Some of them are aware while they have what they consider more general policies, that they're so weak that there's no potential in the near future for them to take a leadership position. And the best they can do potentially is survive. And then you have the other factor, those parties that are seeking the leadership, they're always moving a little. They said, well, they lost this election. What sector, what group of voters can they bring over from the other side to win the next election? So Yair Lapid, who we spoke, that in all the polls, he doesn't go over 20. He's He's sitting there thinking, what do I need to do to get to 23 seats, to 24 seats? What group of people that didn't consider voting for Yeshatin in the past could potentially move over to his side in another election and can move him into a different league. So that's, and Naftali Bennett, the same thing. 
Um, he's saying, what, what will move him into a different league um, by bringing voters who didn't consider voting for Yamina in the past into voting for them right now? And therefore, they suddenly their agenda becomes tactical instead of ideological, which is fine, which means they're representing democracy and they're representing the people. It's how do the democracy works. Yair Lapid or Naftali Bennett trying to get more votes and being acceptable to more people is a healthy part of the democratic process. So on that note, uh, let's say Naftali Bennett, for example, the Amina party. Right now, Yamina is polling close to 20. Right. In every election that Naftali Bennett has uh, participated in, he's always polled higher than the actual results. Much higher. So I don't know how seriously we should be taking these polls. Um, clearly, for the sake of argument, say he gets 15, 16 seats. Right. That's still tremendous compared to what he's done so far. Tremendous. It's a vast improvement. And it, it turns him into a major player. And what does he need to do, in your opinion, to get from where he is now to between 15 and 20 seats? Hard seats, not just polls, but actually on election day. Also, I think we need to take into consideration the fact that even if he's polling around 20 right now, a lot can happen between now and the next election. So what does a man like Naftali Bennett need to do if he intends to not only maintain that potential support, but also increase it between now and whenever the next election will be. He needs to um, take a process that generally begins when elections are called and move that process up to right now, which could be way before the election, which is this. What a party generally does in the course of the election, it speaks to the entire public and it says, where can I potentially get voters? And they're willing to look everywhere. And then the day the elections are called, they draw a new map. They draw a map that says who has already considered voting for us. And they only begin speaking to those people. So Naftali Bennett should draw that map today. He should draw that map that includes over 20 seats of people in the last two elections and this election actually considered at some point voting for Yamina. He should then uh, bring back Arthur Finkelstein from the other side and do direct micro-polling and to see who these people are and what messages appeal to them, okay? And I, we're talking total political now. And then he should see what conflicts. When somebody has, say, 25 seats at once considered, that doesn't mean he can get 25 seats because there are two, three seats on either side that either vote for him or not vote for him, depending on what position. And he can't get them both. So he has to see what those conflicts are, okay? And make a strategic and tactical decision today. In other words, is he going after all the Smudridge voters or not? Knowing that if he goes after all the Smudridge voters, which might be called ideological nationals, even if they're not personally not necessarily religious, but they vote in that fashion. If he's going after all those votes, he needs to make a tactical decision if he is or if he's not. And if he is, he knows he's losing somewhere else two, three seats that would not consider voting for him. But he needs to make those decisions now and focus on who he's going for and work hard and give up the idea that he's going to speak to everybody. In other words, get this world of 18 or 20 seats, okay, 
and focus and hit hard on those 15, 20 seats and make them all come in on election day. Instead of this, this wide expanse of somebody who liked something he once said three years ago and, and potentially bring that person in. That's what he needs to do politically. Yair Lapid, he's struggling on top of the fence as trying to sell himself as centrist on every issue. And it doesn't, it's tough. He needs to make similar decisions. Before he joined with Benny Gantz, he had made a decision that he was going after what might be called liberal religious voters. Westernized kippah wearers. Great, great description. Um, and he was going after those voters. Now, when he formed with Benny Gantz and the other parties running the, the previous elections, he dumped that policy. And those candidates he recruited, most of them who met that profile, he shoved them to the back of his list. Mm-hmm. Oddly enough, with the Norwegian law that came in, the Norwegian law meant that ministers who resign can be replaced in the Knesset with other people who are down on the list. Those, when he split with Benny Gans, and Benny Gans got so many ministries, okay, by going to the Netanyahu government, I hope your people can follow this. Suddenly, he's bringing in eight new members of Knesset that didn't think they would get in. Many of them were people who um, Yair Lapid put on the list, and they said, all right, if we go into the Knesset now, we'll join Benny Gantz who's in the government. And what you have now is you have this large group of a lot of the women, I don't know, about five, what women might, might be called liberal religious, who are on this way back on the list of the combined list, who were put there by Yair Lapid, who are now in the Knesset, and they're serving in Benny Gantz's party and government. Just to be clear, the blue and white coalition that ran in the last Knesset was a combination of a number of parties. Right, right that split up after the election, and some of them went into the Netanyahu government, and some of them stayed in opposition. However, right. I, I just want to make one thing very clear. When somebody resigns the Knesset, whether to become a minister and resigning his Knesset seat or he just goes home, the next person on the combined list that ran comes in, irrespective if that list has since split. It's uh-huh. not that it, it comes in from the side that's uh, one side or the other. It's, it comes from the original list um, that, that ran. So that's important. That's, that's extremely important. That means that Lapid can't say, well, you know, I want them to be Lapid people. They come into the Knesset, they choose which party they're on, and Lapid put them on, and they say, we don't want to be in Lapid, we don't want to sit in opposition, we're going with Benny Gans, and we're going into the government, even though Lapid put them on the list. That's interesting. So finally, w- one thing that's become very clear in these polls, and I think it's, uh, it has historic significance for the state of Israel, the Labour Party, um, the heir to Mapai, the ruling party of this country for the first 30 years of the state's existence, the party of David Ben-Gurion and Shimon Peres and Yitzhak Rabin and Golda Meir does not look like it's going to get into the next Knesset. It is. It will be part of uh, Benny Gantz's combined list. Like he'll make space for them. Right. But on their own, they can't make it in. Right. They don't have enough votes. Yeah, so, so the fact that we've reached a point in history where what was the ruling party of this country for the first three decades of the state's existence 
cannot get into Knesset on its own, I think represents a, a major shift in Israeli society. Sure does. Right. And, you know, I've been here almost 19 years, and I've seen this country change in, in many ways since I've arrived. You've been here longer than me. I'm sure you've seen the country change even more. In general, when I speak about any major policies Israel should consider, I, I do so not taking Israel into consideration as it statically exists at this moment, but really trying to look at the socio-political trajectory of the country. What sectors are growing, what sectors are shrinking, uh, what issues are important to certain people, uh, you know, how strong that group is becoming, other things happening in the region, etc. Where do you see this country heading? There was a big controversy in the 60s on whether to allow television right. in the country. And when they did, they didn't allow it late at night. And there was one channel, fairly government controlled. Right, until the 90s. Yeah. And therefore, the country is different. Um, the youth are different. Travel is a lot more common. You know, people go for a few days to other countries. Um, the social experience is different. The ambition is different. Mm -hmm. It's a different country. Um, it's, not, it's less of a group society. I mean, people are much more individualist at this point. But it's changed. You know, so people would vote labor at some point because their father voted labor. You won't hear that today for any party. You won't hear that for any party anymore. Right. You mean people are voting less according to socio-cultural association than in the past. Right. It used to be somebody would meet someone and they would assume they knew who they voted for and what newspaper they read. Right. Within the first couple of minutes of meeting the person. Right. And it's, it doesn't occur anymore. Doesn't occur. We know each other for, for a long time. I don't know how you voted. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know what newspaper you read or what sites you go to for your primary source of news. Right, but I might be a little bit hard to read because I go to almost every site. Okay. And I, and I can probably find some element of truth in every one of our parties. Okay. All right, Mordechai, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a fantastic pleasure. I look forward to doing this again, and, uh, and thank you. And this is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine. Listeners can check out the show notes at visionmag.org backslash the next age 35.